And good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I know Tina said this earlier, but um, welcome here at Creekside. And, and you know, I just want to say, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your relationship with God, like whether you have no idea why you're here and for some reason you just wandered in, or whether you've been... <laughs> there's a lot of regular attenders that feel that way. Um, <laughs> or whether you have been walking with Jesus a long time and church is just part of your routine. Um, I'm, gla- I'm glad that you're here and I, I hope you feel welcome. You know, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the fact that all of us, I think, show up on any given Sunday or just wake up any given day, and we have like certain assumptions about the kind of people that God would welcome into his presence, the kind of people that um, would experience God's blessing, the, the kind of life that we would have if we followed Jesus. And, um, you know, I think oftentimes like those assumptions aren't, aren't really informed by the truth of God's word at all. And hopefully as you've been walking with Jesus for a long period of time, the truth of the gospel has taken root in your heart and it's transformed your thinking and, and you understand all, all of these counterintuitive things about, about the gospel that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, that, that he's, he's done everything that we have been called to do so that we can just be accepted on the basis of faith in him. You know, as we get into the text this morning, where you know, if you're just joining us, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and 1 Samuel is the story of the establishment of the monarchy in ancient Israel, and and the two big main characters in our story this morning, in fact, probably for the rest of the book, are going to be are going to be Saul, who is the who is the reigning king, who is a bad king, and who God is replacing with a guy by the name of David, who's anointed, uh, who had been anointed by God and anointed by his spirit. But as you can imagine, when, when you're king and, and then there's a, this replacement to coming to take your place, um, that's not something you usually just like like take lying down. And so Saul, for the last several chapters, has been trying to kill David, and David is a fugitive. And last week, what we saw is that he, kind of like as he tried to like deal with all of his fears and, and all of the danger that he was at, he took matters into his own hands. He ended up lying, like this is David, he ended up lying to the priests of God um, uh, in the city called Nob, and we're going to be back there again today. He ended up lying to the priests just for the sake of like five loaves of bread and a sword. Um, we're going to see that that had some tragic results um, in today's story. Then he flees to the city of Gath. And in the city of Gath, like, uh, it was a great place to hide unless he got found out of who he was. He got found out who he was, and he reached the end of himself. And when he reached the end of himself, he finally, like, as he's about to be killed, he finally, like, calls upon the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. And that's where the story picks up this morning is that David gets kicked out of the city of Gath, and, and our story will pick up. You know, I've, I've entitled it The Irony of Allegiance to David because the irony about like what happens in the life of David and in the irony that what happens um, to us uh, through Jesus Christ in the gospel is that, is that David was the outcast king that was being hunted to be put to death. And yet he was also a king who welcomed the outcasts to himself. This is what we'll see this morning. He welcomed the outcast to himself. And the irony of all ironies is David, who's being hunted both within the nation of Israel by King Saul and outside the nation of Israel by all of the enemies of Israel that he had fought against previously. It was, it was in their allegiance to David that they actually found safety. 
this person who's being hunted um, by everybody. And, and it's those who align themselves with David who find safety in the story and those that don't find tragedy. You know, so if uh, our text is going to break out in two, two sections, it's kind of a lopsided text this morning. Um, I actually have a typo up there. I, I did the slides myself, so I have no excuse. Um, yeah, the first one is the friends in faith of David. How did I get that so goofed up? The, that's not even a typo. Um, the friends in faith of David in verses 1 through 5, and in the tyranny and treachery of Saul in verses 6 through 23. So if you can explain to me <laughs> how I goofed that up, uh, more power to you. Um, I have no idea myself, but it gives you confidence going into this message, I'm sure. So... Uh, so why don't you please stand with me, and, and we'll, I'm going to read that first section, verses 1 through 5, and um, then we'll pray and we'll get into our text together. This is God's word for his church. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the fact that you're a God who works in history in surprising and understanding ways to accomplish um, just to accomplish your redemption for your people. And uh, so, Father, I just ask this morning that you would empower me by your spirit to speak your word to your people. I know it's your will that we would gather and be encouraged and built up. So I just ask that you would accomplish that this morning, morning that you would open our hearts to receive the truth and, and that we would come to know you in a deeper way. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, this, these first five verses are, are just kind of a, a really brief accounting of some of David's movements, but there's some really important things for us to, to pay attention to in there. You know, as we first see this, when we start talking about the friends of, and faith of David, we, we first see that David escapes um, out of the land, of, out of the city of Gath. That's where he ended in chapter 21, and he goes to the cave of Adullam. I have a map here that we're only going to just use this one time, so pay attention. Um, and there... <laughs> I didn't mean that to be funny, but... I'm glad it works. Uh, we're going to be following these purple, they don't really show up that great on the wall. The, the purple and pink lines are now, they're kind of burgundy and taupe lines. Uh, see, see on the right-hand side where the number one and the number two is? That's where we were last week. We have Nob where the number two is on the right of the map. And then last week he fled to the city of Gath, which is there in Philistia. And then um, after, what we, what we find out is that he leaves Gath and he goes to the cave of Adullam, which is right there in the middle of the map, like right by the number four there. And, and, and Adullam is about halfway between Bethlehem, you see the mouse pointer there, between Bethlehem and, and Gath. You guys were, were that's, so that's where we are right now. We're in this cave of Adullam. Later on, in, in, at the end of this section, we're going to be going clear over there to Moab. 
And then we're going to be coming back to the nation of Israel. So I just wanted to get you a little bit of geographic reference to where Moab was, where Adullam is, and where Bethlehem is. Because what happens is, is when David goes back to this cave, he's living in a cave here. Somehow he gets word to his parents that he's hiding out in the cave. And, and so it says in verse 1 that his, his, his brothers and his whole father's household came to visit him. Now this is more than just a family reunion. Um, because, because what you know about King Saul, if you've been with us through the journey, is that King Saul is not a nice guy. And in fact, King Saul has been trying to kill David. King Saul even tried to kill his own son on two separate occasions. Um, one of them for, because of his son's like allegiance to David. So like in all like practical purposes, like David's family, because they're David's family and David is the, is God's anointed King. Um, David's family is at risk. And so they leave Bethlehem, not wanting to be killed themselves, and come to David, and they're hiding out in, in the cave with David, his whole family. And we're going to see in verses 3 through 5 that David, David finds safety for them. But then we move on to verse 2, and in verse 2, this is a, like, such an interesting verse. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And I made the joke earlier this week when I was talking to somebody that sounds like he's a church planter. Um, <laughs> sorry, was that like was that too low? So everyone who is in distress, everyone who is discontented, I think the ESV reads bitter of soul. That's kind of what it literally means. Everyone who is in debt. Now this ragtag group of guys, 400 of them, find out that David is in this cave and they, uh, they choose to align themselves with David. Now think about this for a second. David is like public enemy number one. He's being hunted, like I said earlier, he's being hunted by King Saul. He, the Ph- Philistines hate him. Everybody hates this guy. And and, like, imagine the level of desperation you must have to say, like, hey, it's going to be better for me to throw in with this guy who is, who is, like, hunted by everyone than it is kind of remain in my circumstances. You know, the interesting thing about it, though, is that it, it tells us that David became captain over them. This is not just some, like, ragtag band of, like, anarchists that are just getting together in some cave to do what anarchists do, like, organize themselves. Um... That was subtle, but a couple of you got it. (laughs) I mean, this is, they've actually aligned themselves under David. He becomes, he becomes captain over them. They form this military band. They, they view in their mind aligning with David as a better solution than staying where they were. You know, Jonathan Woodhouse, who's a, a pastor, he, he made this really helpful interpretation and, and observation of this. And he says this, um, no longer was David alone, but you could be forgiven for wondering whether he was not better off before he gained this crowd of nobodies. To be captain over this lot was not particularly promising. They were not exactly crack troops, right? These are just a bunch of rabble. We might ask, who would want to join David in Saul's world? And here we see the answer. It was those who had nothing to gain in Saul's world, those who had lost out in Saul's world, and those who were disillusioned with Saul's world. Now, these are the ones that when Saul was reigning, and we're going to see the character of his reign a little bit, like who like had nothing to gain from the world that they were living in. 
They, like David, had kind of reached the end of their ropes, like the end of their rope, like what we saw David last week. And they, they looked to David, the son of Jesse, as this person of hope that might provide them something that, that the world that they had been living in could not provide them. We'll come back to that. You know, it's interesting, though, because uh, last week, one of the things that we saw was that when David was, was like, in Gath and being, like, at almost dying, that he wrote, wrote two psalms. We looked at those last week, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 last week. Um, there's two psalms that David wrote while he's in this cave. Um, at least there, there's two incidents with, with David in a cave. There's this one where he's in a cave, and then there's another one that involves poop that we'll get to later. So... Um, for all you junior hires like me, um, that's a great story too. Most commentators think at least Psalm 57 um, was written in this cave and not the other cave. And let me just read to you. In fact, Cora read some of the psalm um, during worship. But let me just read to you what David, the song that David wrote here. He says this in verses 1 through 3. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. Remember that phrase, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Um, He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah, which means pause for a second. And God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And then down in verses 7 through 11, he says this. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. And I just love that phrase there uh, in verse 8. Like, awake my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. It's this imagery in what, what David's saying there in this psalm, as he lives in this cave in darkness, hiding from Saul. He says, awake my glory, like all of those things that set us apart in glory as human beings, like our mind and our intellect and our will. He's saying, like, no longer let those like slumber in the darkness. But he's like, wake, awake my mind, awake my uh, emotions and awake my will to sing the praises of God. And he's like, awake my instruments, right? My harp and my lyre, like too long have they laid silent in darkness, like awake, like awake and, and play, right? And then he says, and I will, I will awake in the dawn. I will sing praises. Like he's, he's a guy living in a cave. He's like, I've, I've laid asleep in the darkness of, of my situation, in the shame of my situation too long. And I'm going to sing in the light. I'm going to awaken the dawn with my song. Like what a great, like, what a great psalm for a guy that's being hunted, a guy that's hiding in a cave, a guy whose whole life seems surrounded by darkness. He's like, oh, it's been too long in the darkness. Awake. 
And what, a, like, what an amazing picture of God's grace that the first audience to that song that he wrote in that cave was all of those who were what? Who were in distress and who was in debt and who were embittered in soul and who were discontented and who found no place in the world. And, and David, who came to the end of his rope, called upon the Lord and experienced God's deliverance, was able to encourage those who came to him that, you know what, that God is a God who is gracious, that he, he, he protects those who take refuge in him. He accomplishes all of his purposes for him. This, this band of like malcontents, God brings to the one who was outcast himself so that he could point them to, to the Lord. It's this beautiful picture of, of just God's grace upon those guys and God's grace upon us because I don't want you to miss this. You know, in the last two weeks, we've looked at these, these two stories, and there's four psalms, most likely, three for sure, that have flowed out of like these situations in David's life. You know, I think one principle that, that as you've walked with Jesus for a long time, it's, you see it in the scriptures all over the place, is that it's in the rhythms of, of our desperation and God's deliverance that, that worship is born if we call upon the Lord, right? Here in David's life, he's in complete desperation. That's what we saw last week, and he calls upon the Lord. God delivers him, and two songs come from it. Here he's hiding in a cave, hunted for his life with a bunch of, like, rabble around him, and it leads him to worship. Awake my instruments and voice and sing in the light. I will, I will awaken the dawn. So be encouraged, you know, if you're in that situation where you feel like you've been, like your glory has been too long asleep or your, your worship has been too long asleep or your joy has been too long asleep or you've been sitting in shame for too long, like call upon the Lord. Like become familiar with that rhythm of desperation and deliverance and let, let Jesus rekindle that in your life for you. You know what happens next in, in verse 3 is, is that David takes steps to, not only do these, these people find refuge with David, but he takes steps to protect his family. Look what happens in verse 3. It says, and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. That's the thing that was on the far right of the, of the map. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. You know, this is different than last week. Last week we saw that he fled to the city of Gath and, and in the city of Gath he sought protection and it was an act of unfaith to the Lord. This is just the opposite. This is, this is actually an act of faith where David is, is trusting the Lord and he's, and he's seeking to protect his family. And, and let me just illustrate that. I'll show you. you can, we'll see that in his words and we'll see that in his actions. But look, let's look first of all about why Moab. Interestingly enough, like does anybody like David's great great grandmother? Do you guys know who David's great great grandmother was? Anybody? Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess. She's called a Moabitess because she's from the land of Moab. So in in the ancient world, like family and family connections and and hospitality and all of that was alive and a rich thing, and so it made complete sense for them to go to the country of Moab. Um, for David to put his family in the care of the country of Moab because he's related to the Moabites at some level. 
And so he goes to the king of Moab and he says, hey, can you take care of my mom and my dad and my family while they're there? And apparently he must have said yes, because they're there. And, but then, but da- what David says is really, really instructive for us. He says, please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do with me. This is the guy that just sang, right? What did he say over in, in Psalm 57? He's saying to God who accomplishes all things for me. You know, interestingly enough, like David has, this is a statement of faith in David where he recognizes that he, he sings praise to God most high who accomplishes all things for him. And yet he recognizes, and so when he says, until I know what God will do with me, what he's saying is that I'm going to entrust my life into the hands of God most high who accomplishes all good things for me. But those days when I was just a little child and when I was anointed by oil and where everything seemed exciting, there has been a lot of water that's flowed under the bridge since then. There's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of hardship. There's been a lot of struggle. And I'm in the midst of it all, I'm going to trust that God will accomplish all things for me. But it's, it's confidence without presumption. Like David doesn't know if the path that he's going to walk is going to be difficult and painful or easy and smooth. But he knows that he can trust God who accomplishes all things for him. And the same thing's still true for us, right? Like, sometimes we, we, what we think of a faith is just this presumptuous, like, assumption that everything is going to work out great for us. Everything's just going to be smooth for us, and everything's going to be, like, nifty. David doesn't have that. He doesn't have that naive, like, sense of faith. He has the substantive sense of faith that says, like, I worship God most high who accomplishes all good things for me. I trust him. And I'm going to like follow him even though I don't know what that path looks like. Until I find out, please protect my parents until I find out what God will do for me. We not only see it in his words there in verse 3, but he he actually like follows through in his actions. Look what happens in verse 4 and 5. He says, then he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet of God said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the, the forest of Hereth. So it's twice it's repeated in those two verses that David is where? He's in a stronghold. We don't know where that stronghold is. Some Apparently it was outside of like, like the land of Judah proper. But by definition, a stronghold is a great place to be if you're being hunted um, by other people who want to kill you. Right? It's a stronghold. That's the whole point. And yet the prophet Gad comes to David and says, oh, don't stay. He's, now, this is God's word coming to David. Don't stay in the stronghold. In fact, go back to the land of Judah where you're being hunted for your life. It absolutely makes no sense. right? I could be in my bunker or I could be in the very land where I'm being hunted for my life. So what does David do without hesitation? He gets up. And he follows the Lord. His, his faith here is a faith of complete trust in the Lord, without reservation and without presumption. It's a complete trust in the Lord where he obeys his word without hesitation. Like this is a different guy than we saw last week who was lying and scheming to try to save his life. You know, when we're in those situations that don't make sense to us, the best thing we can do is rely upon the Lord 
call out to him who accomplishes all things for us and then commit to walking in obedience to him. So David does in verse 5. The camera then shifts from, from verse 5 and, and then starting in verse 6, the, the scene shifts to, uh, and, and it contrasts us in verse 6. Look what happens in, uh, in verse 6. It says, Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with the spear in his hand, and all of his servants were standing around him. So this is meant to contrast this picture of David. What we had with David, David was in a cave, hunted for his life, uh, surrounded by a bunch of rabble. And now you have Saul on top of the hill in the shade of the tree, out where there's like fresh air, and all of his servants as king are sitting around him. Like, life is good for King Saul. There's a couple things there. There's also, it says that he's sitting there with his spear in his hand. A couple things I think that's meant to communicate to us. First of all, it's meant to communicate his authority and power. He's king. It's like his scepter. But the other thing it's supposed to communicate is it's supposed to be like this omen, this bad omen of things to come. Because every time Saul has his spear in his hand up to this point, like bad things happen. He tends to huck him at David. He hucks it at his son. Like Saul and his spear are not a good combination. In fact, like I don't know why people didn't just take it from him. <laughs> like, and so all of his servants are standing around. They're like, oh, bummer. Saul's got his spear again. You know? If it was a TV show, like, you know, they would have Saul sitting there and then the camera would focus on the spear. Then it would be like some minor playing music and then you would cut to commercial, right? Like, uh, I wonder what's coming next, right? So Saul is sitting in his security, surrounded by servants, like with power and position. And yet all of the power and position that Saul had uh, like couldn't like couldn't save him couldn't deliver him and and we're going to see this unfold you know our second point the tyranny and treachery of Saul and let's look first at his tyranny look what he says well let me start back at verse six and I'm going to read verses six through wherever I stop it says then Saul heard that David and his men were um, who were with him had been discovered now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree. Um, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give you all, also give all, all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of husbands? I mean, hundreds? <laughs> yeah, weird one. Okay. Rough morning for Steve this morning. For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me and discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. So here's Saul, like from outwards perspective, is, is sitting in, in security and power and position and surrounded by servants and in comfort and in freedom. And yet, as soon as he hears that David and his, his 400 like band of like merry men were found in the forest, he completely decompensates, Right? Like he, he, he immediately comes up with this, with this like conspiracy story and, 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 and what he, What's communicated there reveals to us, like, Saul is a tyrant king. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give to you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of husbands? Right? 
That was on purpose that time. So. <laughs> what he's saying is so interesting because um, if, you would re- if you remember clear back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when Samuel was warning the nation of Israel the, about why they don't want a king, Samuel said this in verses 8 through 14. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So the very thing that Samuel said, you don't want a king because he's going to take your best things and give them to his servants. Guess what Saul's doing? He's like, oh, I'm the guy who's going to take and give to you. In fact, earlier, and I don't have this on the screen in verse 12 uh, of of 2 Samuel chapter 8, he had said that he would make them commanders of hundreds and commanders of thousands or something like that, which is exactly what he says here. What's happening here is what we're finding out. The very king that the nation of Israel should have feared is the very king that Saul has become. He he takes from like the people that he's supposed to be serving and he gives it to his servants. In fact, it's really interesting. He says, Here now, O Benjamites. All of his servants are, guess what, from his same tribe and from his same family. And so what he's, what, he, what he's saying is like, I'm the guy who takes from all the other tribes and gives it to my tribe so that my tribe can have possessions and my tribe can have power and my tribe can have wealth at the expense of all of the other tribes that I'm supposed to be serving. He's this tyrant king who do, who's, who's doing everything he can to care for his, his own group at the, at the expense of everybody else. And then he goes into this like conspiracy theory, paranoia stuff. Like, and this is even before the internet. Um, verse eight: For you have all conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush to this day. Interestingly enough, Saul's the one who conspired against David. Saul's the one who hired assassins to lay an ambush at David's house to kill David. And yet, just the very, like, David's running from Saul. The very fact that David's back in the land is enough for Saul to say, like, oh, now David is the one conspiring against me. David is the one seeking to ambush me, and you all should feel sorry for me. I'm the victim here. David's the perpetrator. You know, it's amazing, like how it's amazing how like Saul's bitterness against David like twisted up reality so much that he plays the victim when he's actually the perpetrator. And there's absolutely no evidence of it. Like the evidence, if you've been here in our story, is Saul has faithful servants around him. Sometimes they've even spoken up to try to correct him from doing something stupid. Um, David, all through the stories of our faithfully served Saul over and over and over again. There's no, there's absolutely no evidence for what Saul is saying, but he's telling all of his servants, like, you guys are all the worst because you're conspiring against me and you're concealing it to me that my son and David made a covenant and that David's trying to kill me. Well, then Doeg, verse 9, uh, Doeg was the guy that was back in last week when we saw this, when David was at the temple, like lying to the priest to get the bread and the sword. Um, Doeg was there too in the temple for some reason. We find out today he's not a super pious guy. So um, 
perhaps like he was just there hypocritically kind of worshiping the God of Israel. We don't know why he was there in the temple. But Doeg sees this as an opportunity, and he's called the Edomite because he's from the land of Edom, longtime enemies of Israel who happened to be one of the servants of Saul. And he says this, Then Doeg the Edomite, who is standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob and to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And then he said this in verse 10, And he inquired of the Lord for him, talking about Ahimelech, gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Doeg sees an opportunity here when all of the servants of Saul are remaining silent. He's like, oh, I can score points with Saul. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna like, to like manufacture this story to make myself look even better. First thing he does is he completely like, makes stuff up. Um, he says, you know what? The, the, uh, I saw the, the uh, Ahimelech seek the Lord for, for David's sake, which there was, that never happened. Back in the story previously, in fact, Ahimelech is going to deny it later on in this story. So he made something up. Then he embellished on something. Look what he says. He says, and he gave him provisions. It's a unique word. uh, Later on, like all around this story, it it talks about bread. And here he uses the word provisions, which means it's it's like a military word that he was provisioning David in this task of his. So he's, he's kind of alluding to like, oh, Ahimelech was like behind David's conspiracy too. He gave him provisions. And then he finally tells the truth. And he gave him sword of Goliath, the Philistine, because that like was kind of con- condemning enough once you've established Ahimelech's bad motives that he, he's actually arming David against Saul. And what we know from last week is that Ahimelech had no idea what was going on because David lied to him. And so then verse 11, uh, Saul comes in this story, and I'm going I'm to kind of move through this kind of quickly, I hope. Um, it says, Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. So this picture is interesting. Like Saul sends messengers to go get Ahimelech and his entire family. And guess what they all do? They all come. They have no idea that they're even in trouble. And then when, and then when Saul says hi to him, he's, he just says hi back. Like, hey, yeah, here I am. What, what do you need? Then Saul said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise up against me by laying in ambush as it is this day? So he makes the same conspiratorial like accusation of Ahimelech as he did of all of his servants. And then you have Ahimelech's answer. And Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, and who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? So what Ahimelech is saying is like, I have no idea what you're talking about because David is one of your most faithful servants. Like he has no idea about the drama that's going on. David is one of your most faithful servants. In fact, he's not just your servant. He's your son-in-law married to your daughter. And he's the captain of your bodyguard. That's what he was before he was hunted. So Ahimelech is like, uh, I helped out David. David's your faithful servant. Me helping out David is really helping out you. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's kind of interesting. Something subtle happens here uh, that Ahimelech makes a mistake. Um, He refers to David as David by name. 
don't know if you noticed this, but neither Saul nor, nor Doeg would refer to David by name. He was the son of Jesse. He was him whose name shall not be spoken, right? In, in Saul's house, if you guys get the reference. I'm a pastor, so I don't know it. Um, <laughs> but him whose name shall not be spoken just had his name invoked. Like, David is your son-in-law, and he's your faithful servant. And, and uh, like, I have no idea what your problem is. And then he said this, verse 15, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? That's a really weird kind of phrasing here. So there's different translations, but basically what, what uh, Ahimelech is saying is like, I, d- I didn't inquire of the Lord from him. Um, I didn't inquire of the Lord for him. Like, and he says, far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of the father, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Like, I have no idea what you're upset about, Saul. Like, I haven't done the things you've accused me of. I was just helping out, like, the captain of your bodyguard. Like, what's the problem? But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put, uh, to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. So, so like, immediately Saul says, like, the facts don't matter, Ahimelech. I'm angry, and I'm embittered, and so I'm just going to have you and your family killed anyway. And so he orders all of his servants, hey, kill those guys, and they're like, those are the priests of the Lord. I'm not going to go slaughter the priests of the Lord on some, like, trumped-up charge that they didn't even know anything about. And so they, like, say, no, we're not going to do it. Verse uh, verse 18, then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. That's a reference to them as priests. And he struck the city of Nob, he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. So there's one guy, Doeg, the Edomite. It keeps throwing in that term, the Edomite, just to remind us, this is an enemy of the people of Israel. There's one guy who obeys Saul's like, like tyrannical and treacherous command, and it's Doeg, and he kills 85 of the priests. He goes into the city and kills every man, woman, child, infant, and pet. He slaughters the entire city all by himself. This is a, a bloodthirsty act that had been ordered by King Saul and befell the priests. You know, irony of all ironies in this story, and it just highlights the tyranny of King Saul, is the reason why Saul's dynasty had been removed from the throne is because when God called Saul to attack another nation in judgment um, and, and, and wipe them out, this is earlier, I think it's chapter 15, I think chapter 15, Saul didn't do it, but what he was supposed to do then, he did now to the very priests of God himself. Like, Saul wasn't just a king like the nations, he was a king worse than the nations, he was an enemy of God, he was tyrannical, and he was treacherous, and he slaughtered the priests. It's this horrible story. Verse 20. But one son of Ahimelech 
the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. There's one guy left that escaped. And this is, a, this is an amazingly like difficult story in some ways, but it's also like reassuring in other ways because like, there's one guy. Clear back, if, and most of you probably have forgotten this by now, clear back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when, when, I think it was chapter 2, yeah, when God was pronouncing judgment upon the house of Eli because they had been corrupt priests, he was basically saying, I'm going to remove your entire household from the priesthood. And this is what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 33. He says, the, o- the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So chapters later, 20 chapters later, you have this prophecy, this, this judgment of God coming upon the house of Eli, and there's only one guy left, and he's a guy that comes to weep his eyes out at the slaughter of his entire family. The reason why this is such an amazing thing is you have like the tyranny and treachery of Saul actually accomplishing the purposes of God in the midst of all of this. And and I think we should take comfort in that. You have David fleeing from Saul and God's working his purposes in, in David's life. You have Saul like, and Doeg conspiring against the priests of God, and you have God's purposes being carried out in that. Like God's purposes are being carried out through like the activities of men, and they will, they will not be thwarted. God accomplishes his will in the hosts of heaven. I think Nebuchadnezzar said this. I don't have it on my thing, but he, Nebuchadnezzar says, I think it's in Daniel chapter 4. He says, and who is able to say, like to thwart his hand and who is able to say to him, what have you done? Like if you're worried about like our political climate, if you're worried about like the coming elections, if you're worried about like whatever we tend to worry about and whatever like the internet wants us to worry about, like Know this, that there is no one and no treachery and no treason and no, like, like hatred of God that will, will, like, upset God's plans. In fact, in Psalm chapter 2, you can read it later. In Psalm chapter 2, when the psalmist is talking about all the nations conspiring against God, it just says that God, like, laughs at them. He thinks it's funny. He scoffs at them, and he anoints Jesus to come and straighten it all out. Like God is not, like God's plans are not diverted by the treachery and treason of men. In fact, they're carried forward. Then we kind of go full circle because look what happens with, with this priest. It says, And Abiathar that told David that Saul, this is verse 21, had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your household. It's really interesting what David says there because that word brought about is the same word that's used in verse 18 when Saul orders Doeg to turn around. Um, It's a different form of it, but it's the same root word to turn around and attack the priests of the Lord. What David's saying is like, man, I bear responsibility for the death of your family because I lied on that day to your priests and, and like expose them all to like Saul's wrath. I mean, like David's a, 
like a man that like that like fully takes responsibility for what he's done. You see his regret here. You see him like, and then you see him take responsibility for Abiathar in, in verse verse twenty three. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. What a crazy statement. If you think about it, like think about the content of that statement. Stay with me and don't be afraid. You know why? Because we can both be hunted together. <laughs> the one that seeks my life seeks your life. Like, hey, we're, yeah, we are now public enemy number one and number two. So don't be afraid. For you are safe with me. Like all through this passage, you see like the, the outcast of the world finding safety and purpose in, with David. You see his family finding purpose and safety with David. You, you, now you see Abiathar finding safety with David. And in fact, all through this text, like people are coming under David and aligning with him. Gad the prophet, the one who brings God's word. The prophet aligned himself with David as he spoke God's word to David. And we find out that Gad like hangs out with David, like, like into, clear into his kingdom. The priesthood now aligns themselves with David. So like all of God's like servants, the prophet and the priests are all aligned with David. And Saul is aligned with Doeg, the Edomite, having just killed the priest of the Lord. Why is there safety with David? Because he's God's anointed king. And nothing can thwart his plan. And nothing can do can divert from what's happening. And it's, it's this irony of all ironies that the rejected king and the hunted king is the one in whom we find safety and rescue. In fact, like, you see this all through the pages of Scripture. In, in Acts chapter 4, when the early church was being, pers- was, was being threatened with persecution, they, they came together and they began to pray. And this is their prayer. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 27. I think I, he says... And this is their prayer to God. They said this, For truly in this city where, where you were gathered together, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you guys remember the story? Like, Herod, not even the rightful king on the throne... Like, in order to gain favor with the Jews is wanting to kill Jesus. Herod, I mean, Pontius Pilate, who's the, like, despot kind of, like, governor under, under Caesar, wants to gain favor, favor with the Jews, so he washes his hands of the deal and say, do whatever you want with him. People of Israel falsely accuse him and ask for a murderer instead. All of that treachery and scheming and treason and, and hatred of of Jesus, the son of David, ends up accomplishing what? To do, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Like God's purposes are not thwarted by the schemes and treachery of men. And in fact, it's in the rejected son of David, Jesus Christ, that we find our ultimate safety. And that's the irony and craziness of it all. In fact, Paul, start, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
I think it's in verse 19 or verse 18. Listen to what he says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. I think it keeps going. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know that God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I mean, this is a remarkable story. Jesus, the rejected son of David, who, who is hunted and killed by all the prevailing kings, is the very one who saves those who believes. It's craziness, is what Paul's saying. Why would you believe that? It's irony upon irony. Because it's God's power so that he can confound the wise to show that even in his foolishness, he's wiser than men. He goes on in, in, uh, at the end, and it not only teaches us something about God and his purposes, it teaches us something about us. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, he says this, and he's talking to like the church. So this is to all of you. For, consider your calling, Creekside. But there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Do you hear what he's saying? Like, look around, look around, see somebody else. They're not here because they were wiser, smarter, more righteous, better. They were the outcasts of the world, right? Like God chose the foolish, the, where is it? The weak, the base, the despised. So that no one will boast before God. If you're a Christian this morning, you should have this deep humility that comes from realizing that it is the outcasts that come to the outcast king. It's not because you're better than anybody else. So you don't boast before God. And then he goes on. I think he goes on. But by who's doing? His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The story of David illustrates for us something that, that God works in the most mysterious and unexpected ways. He saves us through the death of his own son and he, who raises back to life and give, grants life to all who come to him. He's the one that awakens the dawn. And it's, it's the outcast, those that have nothing to gain in Saul's world, those who are disillusioned with Saul's world, those who have lost everything in Saul's world that in the life of Jesus like came to him over and over and over again. So if you're here and you think like you're sitting there like on the height under the tree in the shade with a cool breeze on you with power and position and stuff, like that is a fragile place to be. But if you're, if you're feeling like, man, I'm, my life is a wreck and I'm an outcast, like know that Jesus is the one who welcomes all to him in faith, and he's able to save those who believe.
So Marv, why don't you come up to close us, and then I'll close us in prayer. Father, I just think about that song, and, um, you know, the amazing thing about this song is that it's in Jesus that, that you, you welcome the weak and, and the fatherless and the poor and the orphan and the outcast. And, um, and even as I sing that, I realize, like, I don't reflect his heart for people like, like I should. And so, Father, I just ask for us that, that we would know Jesus Christ as the, as the outcast one who welcomes us and that we would be able to turn around as that song sings and show your compassion and your mercy and your grace. Um, to others as we walk in, in the humility that, that receiving your grace gives us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.